You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 65, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Jennifer Zhang, a woman who escaped from the hard labor camps in China and now reports on what the Chinese government is doing to its citizens and those in Hong Kong. Ms. Zhang was a practitioner of Falun Gong, a peaceful spiritual belief that gained popularity in China in the 1990s. Unfortunately for Jennifer and tens or hundreds of millions of others, the Chinese Communist Party saw Falun Gong as a threat and cracked down on it. It threw millions into hard labor and re-education camps and uses these political prisoners even today as commodities to sell. Jennifer received her master's in geochemistry from Peking University, married, joined the Communist Party, and had a daughter. After beginning to practice Falun Gong and becoming persecuted, she escaped from prison and eventually sought asylum in Australia, where she was able to eventually retrieve her daughter and make her way to America. Jennifer is the author of two books, starred in a documentary film about China, and reports often on the struggle for freedom in both China and Hong Kong. I trust you will find the first-hand perspective on what it's like to grow up during the Cultural Revolution and survive communism both fascinating and horrifying, as I did. Links for her blog, Twitter feed, books, and film can be found at theparadox.com slash 065. If you haven't already done so, please leave a review, written if possible, on your podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. But without further ado... Jennifer Zhang on Communist China and its crackdown on Hong Kong and minorities. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much. I'm here with my friend, new friend, uh, Mrs. Jennifer Zhang. She's a Chinese national originally, and she's now uh, been living in the United States after escaping Communist China. And we're going to talk about the story that she has uh, to better understand what's going on in Hong Kong and what's going on in China, and to understand. I guess really what when I talked earlier in episode 17 about the forced organ harvesting and so I wanted to try to better understand these things and I think there's no one better than someone who's actually lived those. So Mrs. Zhang, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Well, I'd like to start I guess for you to tell a little bit about your story and and how you got to the point where you got in trouble, which is in as I reviewed your Wikipedia page is 1997. So why don't you talk about your early life and sort of how you got to the point where the story sort of begins. Uh, Okay. Uh, I was born in the year when the Cultural Revolution started. That's 1966. Uh, Actually, ever since the communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party, which we were referred to as the CCP in, in our future conversation. So ever since the CCP took power in China, it just started to persecute different parts of the, the society. So it launches a different a political campaign every 10 or seven or eight years. So during the Cultural Revolution, <clears throat> because my father was an intellectual, which belongs to the bad class by the definition of the CCP. So he was relocated from a bigger city to a very small town, which had only 30,000 uh, <clears throat> population. <clears throat> so I, my childhood was spent with my father in that small little town alone, and uh, my father was not allowed to live with my mother together. So my mother was living in another very small uh, village. Uh, She taught in a primary school in that small village. So she and my two sisters lived there, and I and my father lived in another place. It took many years for 
our family to be able to uh, live together. So during the Cultural Revolution, life was very difficult for our family because our class, we, we belong to the wrong class. So I remember as a child, I was even allowed, or, or was, I was very reluctant to play with other kids because if we, we kids had started a fight, it could be uh, regarded or uh, looked at as a class struggle between the intellectuals or bad class with the working class, which is a good class in, in China by definition then. So I, my childhood spent in loneliness and uh, kind of being discriminated from the whole society. So uh, that life was very difficult during that period of time. Did you have a lot of contact with your mother's family? So you were separated from two, your two sisters and your family just split in half. How did, yeah. did you have much contact or able to see each other? Yes, we tried to visit each other during, um, you know, the, the, my mother, you know, she, she taught in the school, so she had some like holiday school breaks up. So I remember we, we either we, my father and I traveled to my mother or my mother traveled to us just to, to visit us. I actually wrote a, a story, the story of my father. If you search for the story of my father and Jennifer Zen, you could uh, read that article and know how life of that period is really is my my mother almost uh, I think tried to divorce my father because life was just too difficult to live like that. So I, I wrote about those stories in that series of article. Oh boy! And and why don't you describe what it meant to be a Communist Party member? Because I know that part of your bio mentions that you're a member and how that affected uh, you know going to school and and getting your training. Yes, oh, you know, in China, the party is the is the absolute, you know, controlling of uh, the party is the absolute ruler of everything. So ever since uh, we we were born, we were taught that the party was always glorious, always correct, always, you know, great. So to join the young pioneers and the youth league, and then the party seems to be. Uh, the only correct way for one to walk through if you want to uh, to do well in this society. So everybody was uh, virtually forced to join the party, whether you want to or not, or not to join the young pioneers as, as young as six years old. Everybody who enters the primary school uh, has to uh, join the young pioneers, which means you are at the initial stage on your way to becoming a party member. Then in your teenager, in your, in your middle school, you have to join the youth league. And then in your university or after you, when you become an adult, you try to uh, get, uh, try to get, become a member of the party. Uh, because, you know, that's the whole environment of the society because I was always very obedient. I did very well with my study. So I always believe that was the way to go if I want to do well in this society. So I uh, asked or applied to join the party when I was in, I think, the second grade in my university. So that's how it happened to me, yeah. And uh, and so then you got your degree in, uh, you're a science major in, well, I think it was biochemistry. Um, wh- what happened then? You, you, had, you had a family, correct? Yes, yes. I, I married when I was, I think, still a graduate school and I had a daughter and I, during childbirth, I encountered two very severe hemorrhage and lost a, of, a lot of blood. I almost died too. I was twice in very oh critical condition. Yes. Uh, then I couldn't work, I think, for several years until in 1999, I got a set of books of Falun Gong from my family back in Sichuan province. And I read those books and I found them very good. 
I started practicing this Falun Gong, which is a very ancient mind-body-spirit practice that was very popular in China then. So I got recovered very, very quickly, like a miracle, only within a month of daily exercise. You know, I somehow I couldn't recover from my illness or very bad, uh, you know, health problems for years, for several years. Uh, so, but uh, the practice of Falun Gong really, really helped me. I see. So, so it was a uh, so this Falun Gong, which uh, we, I talked about in episode seventeen. Those are the it's a spiritual practice, I guess. You, uh, it's not probably an organized religion, right? It's more of a, a spiritual practice, and that helped yes. you. It just helped you recover from, like what it, from I guess the, the ailments you were suffering from, and. And what what got you involved in what made you think about it? Is it just because everybody was there are a lot of people doing it, and so you thought you'd try that, or how did you come upon it? I guess. Uh, yes, actually, that is quite I think profound. You know, I I I studied science in university, so but ever I think uh, since I was a university student, I started to ask questions like many philosophers. Had yeah. asked before, who am I? Why am here? Where am I going? So I also uh, started to ponder about uh, the purpose of human life, and a lot of you know questions towards human life, towards university, and I always wondering if there is an ultimate truth in this universe. I somehow believed that there was. If there was not. I don't think the university can maintain its stability and harmony. So I tried to seek for that ultimate truth. I read a lot of philosophy books, Western and Eastern, Asian and modern, and a lot of religious books. I even studied the books of changes, which, and I be, later I even became very good at predicting things with the techniques I learned from the books of changes. So, so for me, it's a very profound spiritual searching since, since it, my, my university days. But I read all those books there, out there. But still, every time I read, uh, came upon a new theory, I became very excited. But somehow, after a period of time, those things faded away. I, I felt I was still puzzled by all yeah. this is a hand, but the set of books uh, of Falun Gong somehow answered, gave me very satisfactory answer to all my questions. So for me, it's a more spiritual thing. So the health benefit is just a side product of my practice of Falun Gong, but it's many spiritual, more spiritual uh, meaning for me. Right. No, so it's a metaphysical yearning you had to try and they, like you said philosophers have been trying to decide why am i here who am i and what's my purpose and what's the purpose of you know everything yeah. right yeah and so and so by finding those answers it probably just helped the other things in your life sort of fit together and uh and and work better um i want to back up a little bit and talk about your father so mm-hmm. uh you were the government, the, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, separated your family and made your life very difficult. And made and and what was? I mean, you worked very hard in school, but what was his feeling on the party? Did you did you two talk about it much? Did you have a different sort of view of what the party was like and what and how they were and the government? And uh, did you have a, a negative view of them, or were you sort of well, that's they're just doing what they're best they they can, and so what happened to our family was supposed to happen. Okay, I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty much sure you, you will be surprised by this. <laughs> uh, because in China, talking about politics is very, very dangerous. So my sure. father and I, for in our whole life, never discussed politics at home. Uh-huh. So I remember, as I said, when I was in, <clears throat> when I was a child, you know, during Cultural Revolution, all the literary books, you know, especially the Western ones, were destroyed. The Communist Party called them poisonous weeds. So we actually, as, as a child, I had nothing to read apart from the textbooks in the school and I have a, a 
wanting to read more books. So my father actually, because he loved literacy, literature, so he wrote novels for me to read, like those <laughs> revolutionary stories, like Little Red Gods Catch, you know, banned enemy for the party. But as soon as my mother found he was writing something, my mother always, <coughs> excuse me, my mother always burned all his writings. Really? Because, yeah, it was very, very dangerous. So the only time that I ever heard him talking about something that has a little bit to do with politics was, you know, when uh, one year before I was going to sit the admission, uh, it's a national admission test examination for the entrance examination for college. Uh-huh. We need to select whether you want to study science or literature art. So there are two fields to select. So usually they say, oh, girls maybe are better off studying literature arts because their minds are not for science. So I asked my father's opinion. So that was the only time he said something that had something to do with politics. And he said, no matter who is the president or chairman of this country, one plus one is always two. So you study science. So because, you know, he studied politics and law in his university and he encountered so many, so many bad things during Cultural Revolution. So he did not want me to repeat his mistake. So he insisted on that my choosing science. So I followed, I was very obedient. I followed his instruction. I studied science, geochemistry in particular. And I got a Master of Science, and we all believe at that time we would avoid having me to get into trouble because I'm out of politics, I'm studying science, one plus one is always, <laughs> it's always two, we should not have any problems, but who knows. But clearly you got into trouble <laughs> because, yes. Yes. because you sought answers that can't be answered by science, and, and, in, and, and I suppose... Well, that led you to Falun Gong. And was there an expectation for people who began practicing Falun Gong? Because what happens next is there's a crackdown by the, the by the government, which goes to this day, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, and was it were people surprised by this? Why do you think the government did it? I mean, kind of give me an idea for what the environment was like at that time. Yes, I think it was very, very uh, surprising for me at that time because I think... Uh, during 1980s, I think especially before the crackdown on Tiananmen massacre, there was a, a very short period of time when people had a little bit of freedom to search for for something like for for what I searched. I, 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 after the Cultural Revolution, you know, after people, uh, the China adopted the opening to the outside. A policy and the reform. So we actually imported a lot of things from the West. People started talking about learning from the West. People even start talking about, you know, uh, science plus democracy. It's a way for China to go to improve our society. So that uh, that there was a little bit of window, uh, I think, for several years in, in the late 70s and during the 80s. And so there are, uh, I think, two, maybe two more than 2,000 of different Qigong practice booming like in China during that period. So I actually learned a lot, uh, several other Qigong practices before I took up Falun Gong. So, and the government actually encouraged it because, you know, if people practice Qigong, they became more healthy, healthy, and they save, you know, medical care money for the government. Yeah, so... So there was many positive actually report um, on Falun Gong, on Qigong, and so so that's how that all that's why Falun Gong spread you know so fast during only six or uh, seven years since its first introduction to the public in 1992, the number of Falun Gong practitioners actually exceeded that of the Communist Party member. And uh-huh. that's, I think, when and why 
this practice got into trouble with this one part in within this one party state. So, I mean, the traditional thinking when I've heard people talk about religion when it comes to uh, communist governments is or totalitarian governments is essentially that the government wants itself to be the center uh, of purpose and not any and to not be um, subservient to anything else like a metaphysical, you know, either God or some sort of spiritual practice. And so they see that as a threat to their authority and their potent, their, you know, credibility. Uh, and so that's why they crack down, whether these people are actually like revolutionaries or not, that's why they try and stop it. Would you, would you agree that's sort of the thinking maybe? Yes, I think that's how it worked in China. After the CCP came into power, the first thing it did to it is to eliminate all the religions. All the religions were not allowed, especially during Cultural Revolution. You know, people had a portrait or picture of Chairman Mao in their family. They worship Chairman Mao every day. Like he actually replaced replaced all the other gods, all the other religions. The party became the only religion. In, in the world, so uh, in, in the country. So it's different from, you know, like a normal country. A party is just a party. It, got, it can be changed and any, anyone can establish another party. But in China, this party is the God, is the only uh, religion, and it has replaced every other religion. So, of course, it won't uh, allow any other thing to compete for this kind of status of itself. Of course, it wants to crack down on any any serious religion. Right now, after the crackdown of Falun Gong, we see they also came after you know Tibetan Buddhist Buddhist mm-hmm. house church members and and the Uyghurs because they they believe in they have their own religion. They believe in something else. So anybody who believes in something else has a problem with with the party. So. You're part of the Falun Gong, and then explain what happens to you because you get taken to prison, I assume, and how does that whole process work out, and then what's what happens to your family in this whole thing, ordeal as well? Um, oh, that, you know, everything turned upside down since the day of the crackdown happened. I was arrested four times and then sent to a labor camp and then tortured very badly, nearly to death uh, during that period. And my <clears throat> sister was also given 18 months in the labor camps because she also practiced Falun Gong. And I had to escape from my family uh, only uh, five days of, of my release. And uh, since then, I was wandering the, uh, around the hiding in the, in, the, in the country for several months. And then I was lucky enough to escape China, but all my family was left inside China. So still to this day, the National Security Department are having regular talks with my family, family mm-hmm. members. You know, yeah, so, so everything was turned upside down for the whole family, for everybody in, in the family. Did you escape with your your child? I actually escaped alone, and uh, I sought asylum in Australia. And after I got uh, my refugee status, I was lucky to be able to get my daughter to join me in Australia. That was in you know two thousand four. Uh, she she actually joined me exactly three years after I was released from the labor camp. So for, for so in this uh, case, or in this sense, I was much, much luckier than many of my fellow Falun Gong practitioners who had not had the opportunity to escape China and who are still suffering there. That's why I'm trying to speak out every time I can. It is really hard for people, and I, I feel... Personally, I feel really bad that I didn't that I was unaware of of sort of the human rights abuses that are occurring mm-hmm. uh, in China. And the organ when I first heard about the organ harvesting, I thought there's no there's no way this could be true, right? Because if especially yes. the scale, the scale is so large. It's not like we're it's not like there are a couple hundred people who this this is occurring to. Mm-hmm. We're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not you know a million people that this has happened to. It 
Mm-hmm. It's inconceivable that it, that mm-hmm. something on this large scale, because as much of a big deal we make about the Holocaust and other you know horrible atrocities or what happened in Rwanda, I mean there are all kinds of you know genocides, and yes. that it's a big deal. Yet yeah. no one talks. I mean, I shouldn't say no one. There are definitely instances you can find it in the press, but it's really, it's sort of happening, but no one ever talks about it. I don't. It. I don't understand. <laughs> yes, I think if we want to explain this, this comes to a whole very very big topic and a very serious one. It's it, it's related to Hong Kong. It's related to what's happening in the U.S. and in the world. The Communist Party actually had a very big ambition, you can say, to conquer the world. It was in, it was in writing in the Communist Manifesto in hundreds of years ago. They declare in that 19, maybe 18 some, something year, I forgot which year, yeah. declared yeah. in the manifesto the purpose of the Communist Party or the communism is to demolish all existing social order and is established a new order for the for the world. Maybe nobody took it serious today, but but they still took it very serious. Only maybe sometimes they talk about it, sometimes they don't. So at, at least in China they had this very, very tight control of everything. So all the media is controlled, all the society, all the system is controlled. So it is very, very hard to any kind of this kind of bad information to get out of China. And, uh, and uh, I think sadly, they somehow used, they took the advantage of the loopholes in the, in the West after they were allowed to join WTO. They used money investment coming from the West to, to become rich, and then they used the money back to control the world. We just saw the controversy of the NBA episode of somebody, you right. know, Maury corrected. So, so that's how they, they are working. They are using the money. If the powerful guys, the, the rich man, the rich people as, a, as like an NBA star, can be controlled or controlled to the party. You, you imagine it, it is actually what happened. They used their money to, uh, to try to bought over, I think, to try to buy over many politicians, big multinational companies, because they want the Chinese market, they go to, mm-hmm. to China, and they actually help the party to, to, to monitor and to uh, crack down on the people. They gave them the technology, like the internet, great firewall of the internet. They got the technology from Cisco. So the West is not only not helping to spread the truth, they're helping the party to crack down. And many media media companies, major media companies, shut themselves up. If it's, this is too sensitive to the party, somehow everybody is in their subconscious practicing self-censorship. Even, I think, the previous U.S. government you know, for many, many years, they even dare not to openly raise the issue or uh, say the word about human rights when they vi- visit China, when they met with the CCP leaders. So that's how these millions of people are, are, you know, being murdered and, and their organs sold and the world, like you said, still knows so little about what's happening. If we still not, you know, try to wake up, now this thing is moving. They are, because they are very successfully so to suppress this, you know, Falun Gong, if such a large group can be silenced, can be suppressed like this, they move their, you know, like, like you can say front room, little by little uh, from within China now to Hong Kong uh, and the next step. Is where you can imagine. Yeah, right. I mean, the, as you said, they're leveraging their their market and the uh, the uh, opportunities to make money for the yeah. multinational corporations and for the U.S. government. Right. It so it's it's funny because you always hear people you'll hear it just sort of vague generalized. Well, they're human rights abuses, and that's all you'll hear. You won't know what they're talking about uh, when you 
you know, that you you hear the well the controversy that is the president going to address human rights abuses, but that's like all you hear. You don't hear actually what it is. Yes. It's completely different of saying someone can't write a book versus you were going to you know shoot someone in the head and take their organs and sell it to people. I mean, people I think would have a much different, a, a much more visceral reaction to one, and be and you know I think rightly be sort of find it abhorrent and and want to and be much more concerned about it than some vague sort of civil loss of civil liberties, which I think are important, but certainly when people when people talk about it, again just the the euphemism human rights abuses. It covers so many things. It's it it's hard to really. It doesn't have a meaning because you don't actually know what the act is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, you would say absolutely this is happening. Like you know, I mean, yes. The the, uh, the organs. How do they how do they do it? I mean, I get just in general. They do they just get a blood sample and they just keep you in prison, or do they get a blood sample and just let you roam the streets and it, whenever they need it they come pick you up? Is it? I mean, is it sort of like an open air prison. I think it happened little by little. In the, uh, my, uh, as early as the 1960s, there were uh, maybe just uh, very uh, separate or individual cases, like they they murdered or they they executed somebody as anti-revolutionist, and yeah. then those those ladies organ got removed, and then they they put it you know they they use use them in organ transplants. And then I think in in eighties and nineties, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, has always been doing this to executed prisoners. So so it's a common practice. Their thinking is, uh, and you you are bad people. You are you know sentenced to death. Yeah. And uh, uh, why not just harvest your organ to save somebody and to make some money to make some usage of your useless self so so for them to, to do this kind of thing have no mental mental barrier or uh, moral code you know constraining them because they're they're uh, atheism and they don't think human has human dignity or human rights they regard humans as a flesh you know body still alive if you die you die and they they regard you as a piece of material so if yeah. they want to make use of this material, why not? So I think, I believe after the crackdown of Falun Gong, because they can round up so many people, detain them, and then to uh, all harvest you know, orga- organs from executed prisoners to harvest somebody or kill somebody alive on demand for his organs is just one step further for them. So mentally, they have no problem. But of course, technically, they they need to have the technology. Again, the waste uh, medical society is helping them to train a lot of organ transplant doctors. So the, the bottom leg for, the, for them to boom this transplant industry, you can say, is, well, of course, um, they have enough doctors. And uh, second and most importantly, they have enough organ uh, suppliers. So after the crackdown of Falun Gong, because, you know, millions of people were arrested and detained either in labor camp, in detention center, in some kind of legal school or in prison. They started, I believe, from very, very early on. I was in the camp in 2000. That was just less than a year since the crackdown happened. I was, you know, Uh, forced to go over, you know, to undertake medical exams, not only once, but twice. And and everybody had the blood test, had the blood test in the labor camps. So I I believe they started to do this systematically as soon as the crackdown on Falun Gong began. So everybody in the camp, especially Falun Gong practitioners, got uh, our blood and the or whatever, you know, they gave us very thorough physical checkup. So they store, I believe, our data in the computer system. They must mm-hmm. have a data system. So anyone need an organ, they just search for a match in that database. If anybody was a match, that person can be killed on demand. And this is the only way to explain the, the, the very sharply increased 
uh, the organ transplant numbers, uh, which uh, which is done in China every year. And this yeah. is the only reasonable way to explain that shockingly short waiting period. There are so many evidence that the only, I think even in the hospital's website, they openly promise you that you, you, they can find a match for you within two two weeks and it's yes so that if you put all these things these figures these dots together the only reasonable conclusion is they are killing people on demand and on a very very large scale right now i think the china tribunal has just uh, issued a verdict in in june this year and i think there are very very solid Evidence. As long as someone, uh, you know, uh, is willing to spend a little bit of time to read those material, everybody will be convinced of that for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, when I talk to other physicians, I'm with you know that most of them haven't heard of this either, and they're shocked and amazed that this is occurring. And yeah. one of the questions I always get is, well, I mean. How are you? How do you know they don't have a sophisticated uh, donor network uh, like in this country? You know, if if someone dies from an accident in in Salt Lake City, and they have a heart and it matches someone who's waiting for a heart in say Boston, they will fly a plane out. They'll heart, they'll um, retrieve the organ and then take it back to Boston and transplant it. Uh, my understanding is that doesn't that sort of system doesn't exist in China, and that also there's not any sort of large list of people who are willing to donate organs and that's because it's like a cultural it's it's a cultural thing to be buried whole without your with all your organs is is that accurate yes actually uh before uh, 2015 there's no uh donation system at all it's not like the, the u.s whenever yeah, yeah. somebody you know got a drive license they you, they ask you whether you want to become a donor and you are got listed and there are two you know one waiting list and a donor list so there are two lists very i think well established system in the u.s and in many western countries as well but in china everything is in a dark place they don't have a waiting list they don't have a donor list and like you said it is against chinese culture to donate your organ somehow chinese believe you need to keep your body as a whole uh, so nobody actually uh wants to donate maybe things change a little bit now but uh, virtually there there is no such a system in china and because of this uh revelation of this organ live organ harvest issue they try to say that oh they are setting up a system and they'll stop using you know prisoners mm-hmm. organs since 1915 but there are still i don't trust anything the party is telling us uh, there are still many loopholes i actually write an article about a simple mass and a shocking reality. If you compare what they claim of the numbers of registered dollars to the organ or the, to the actual transplant they did, to the same to the numbers of what the ratio in in America, you have a ratio if you you know you compare the the registered dollars to the actual transplant happened. In China, they have maybe uh, thousands of of a uh, higher rate, which means they have they only need maybe one hundred uh, richest dollars to do one transplant. Well, in in America, you may you might need three hundred thousand something. Yeah, so right. you, you you need to question that a very simple math. Every I think fourth grader can do a math to compare, and you can you you need to explain why the ratio has so huge gaps there. So so the whole system of the so-called donation system is just a, a fake thing. So don't yeah. trust it at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear. I think there are dozens, if not over a hundred, uh, transplant hospitals that all they do are transplants in the in the country. Yes, uh, and doing and they even report on their websites. Um, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of transplants. And if you have no sophisticated system, then there's only one, there's only one explanation that you're getting from people against their will. And I think uh, there was a recent uh, 
expose done by a South Korean news station in maybe November of 2017, and I linked this yes. to back in my seven, uh, episode 17, where they go in, they they basically go with hidden cameras, in, which I amazing that they are able to sort of pull this off, but they went to hidden cameras and are talking to nurses and doctors about, you know, and meeting patients who are waiting for the or- kidneys or whatever organ it is and sort of the openly talking about how much it costs. And if you want to be put to the front of the line, it's going to be an extra, you know, $5,000 or whatever. Yes. Uh, but it's very, I mean, it's, it, I guess uh, my, you know, understanding with most of these communist authoritarian governments, there's obviously lots and lots of corruption is, uh, are the people who are sort of heading, who hold the prisoners, are they financially benefiting from this? Do you think, I mean, is it, I'm trying to figure out how this is happening because I, I imagine that the government knows it's happening but doesn't really stop it because it's bringing in uh, f- it's bringing in capital so that they can then use it in other places in the government. But uh, is do you think people are sort of various levels of officers who are in charge of the hospitals and the you know whatever they are actually pocketing some of this and becoming enriched personally too? Is that how this you know including the, yes. the prison yeah. wardens and yeah okay. Yes, of course. I think you mentioned that documentary. I also watched that documentary. You can see in that just one hospital in Tianjin, they yeah, admit right. they they conduct thousands of uh, of transplants per year, and they have thousands of people from South Korea along flying there to do transplants. So, and uh, like you said, you see, you know. A transplant hospitals building big, big, build up build big, big buildings and uh, one by one through those years. Like you said, if you don't have a huge industry to sustain it, why do you uh, continue to build up so many transplant hospitals? And the, the beds are always full, always have people, you know, there. So it means they really have a huge amount of people waiting to be cured. Uh, and also, you mentioned the the financial benefit. Number one, I think this is definitely a government section of a sponsored, you can say, industry. Without the government consensus, this can't be done on such a large scale. And uh, many of them uh, benefited them from uh, the military hospitals and uh, also all the, the labor camps. And the court even got got paid by this because the court, if they executed somebody, they sentenced somebody to, to this and the, the prisoners, detention centers, labor camps all benefit from it. Actually, they, uh, when they, this, kind, this kind of crime was first exposed by a lady who gave herself, herself an artist named Annie, back in 2006 why she said she talked about why she discovered this because she found her in her 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 husband was actually uh, responsible for removing the cornea of of the people and his her husband has done has removed the cornea from more than 2,000 living Falun practitioners. And, okay. the, and the reason she found out was she found suddenly there were so much uh, cash in U.S. dollars at her home, and she couldn't figure out why as a family they suddenly got so many, so much extra U.S. dollars. And she found her husband was in a very weird kind of situation. He couldn't sleep well. He was often in a like, not him quite himself. He was got scared and he got so much extra cash notes of in U.S. dollars where he couldn't uh, explain the source and later on and, and little by little he because he was under too much mental pressure he disclosed this matter to her and then that's why they decided they want to escape China to, to tell the world what's happening because she said at that time there were 6,000 Falun Gong practitioners detained in the underground facilities uh, of her hospital and two of 2,000 of them already got killed. And she oh. said if she exposed this, uh, those remaining 4,000 could be saved. But unfortunately, uh, I think the Chinese Epoch Times uh, and the uh, New Tang Dynasty TV maybe were the only two 
uh, media outlets, which had the courage to report what she said back in 2006. None of the major media reported about them. So she made such a sacrifice. She always got killed, you know, by the, by the CCP when she tried to escape. She, used, uh, she, she stood out. We, if you search for, for the report in that year, you could still see her voice and so her, her image. So yes, one of the issues she found out what's wrong inside this family was the money. She said something like 300,000 US cash in her yeah. family. So, so yes, all the doctors, that's how they, they are willing to do it. They are bought over, they all, you, you know, you, you, everybody has some blood on your hands, so you, you keep quiet and you benefit from it. So I know, you know, if you go to a lot of U.S. medical centers in this country and you look for transplant surgeons and programs, there are a number of Chinese nationals who are training, you know, to be transplant surgeons. Uh, there's lots of research and collaborative research with between the United States and China in when it comes to transplant practices, you know, various uh, medications to help transplants survive and, you know, all the sorts of medical things that one would do. Uh, and my contention has been that we should probably not allow any of that because it's all in, invariably it's being used. <laughs> it's, yes. We're, we're assisting people who are yes <laughs> performing atrocities and that, that, that research is not, you know, you wouldn't collaborate with the, the Nazis <laughs> when they're yes. researching at Auschwitz and for the same reason we shouldn't in this country. I, I guess, uh, do, do these, do these researchers, uh, who come to the, because, you know, I think a lot of them are, I don't know, they're in their 20s, I suppose, or maybe 30. When they come in to learn these, do they know when they go back that that's how the transplants occur? I mean, or do they, are, they, are they not aware of sort of how the circumstances? What do you think? I'm not quite sure uh, that about the situation about everyone. That, that I think the majority of, well, you can say, in China, because this organ transplant uh, industry has been totally tarnished by this kind of killing people for the organs practice. And uh, I, I guess the majority of the doctors uh, who are learning this or who are involved in this uh, kind of, it's, it's just very common. It's already become very common practice and accepted model for this industry now. So I don't know if there's anybody who is clean or anybody who is not. But overall, this industry, I think, is heavily, heavily uh, tarnished by this, you know, I don't know how to, this, uh, at the very least, anti-humanity crime it's no, no less evil than the holocaust as you mentioned because millions of people were killed and um, yeah. you know you know uh, industrialized and, and treated as a body parts com- commodity yeah. uh, i think that's 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 just evil beyond the imagination of the norm, uh, of any normal human being and I understand sometimes, I actually for myself, when I first heard about this, even though I had experienced so much cruelty in the labor camp, I was almost tortured to death. I still found it was very hard for me to believe that this was happening. Because somehow, I later on, I figured out why, because this is too cruel to any normal human being to accept yeah. as a reality. And the second question is, if you admit this is happening, uh, you are immediately faced with a moral obligation to do something about it. Yeah. Otherwise, can you call yourself a human being if you know this is happening to your fellow human being and you don't do nothing? So sometimes it's, it is easier to, to just try to pretend I don't know because you don't have to deal with this hard, uh, this issue, which is very hard to, to admit and to deal with. Yeah, I think that's probably 100% accurate. I imagine even the, the people who are performing the surgeon, surgeries they may know there are people being executed for their organs, but they probably say in their mind, "Well, these were these were bad people. They were, you know, prisoners. They broke the law, and they deserve. They were going to be executed anyway. So we're getting some value out of this, and it may be helping someone else. And you can certainly 
find ways to justify what's going on, even though you may, even though you may on some level know, but otherwise you wouldn't be able to sleep. I can't imagine. I mean, unless you're, there aren't that many monsters in the world. (laughs) Right. I mean, I, I think you couldn't have that many people who are privy to sort of the, what's going on. Let's shift a little bit to Hong Kong because I'm really interested in this and, um, I don't know. I'll admit I don't know much about it. I I know that the 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 UK handed over uh, Hong Kong its colony over to China, and yes. that with conditions that China or that Hong Kong would maintain its uh, its normal freedoms that it had been that it had lived with for you know however many years under the under the uh, British rule for yes. fifty years, mm-hmm. and that China agreed to this, of course, uh, because you know they're going to get Hong Kong and they wanted the money and the, the economy, but that at some point the Chinese have decided that they're going to just make a, it seems to me they're just making a play to say, we're just going to bypass the 50 years and we're just going to make sure that by the time we get to 50 years, it's sort of already done. We're not going to try and do a cold turkey, <laughs> you yes. know, from freedom to no freedom. And then we're going to yeah. sort of slowly. Yeah. Yes. I think that's, well, that's what happened to Hong Kong. Uh, the, the CCP, when the CCP promise you anything, don't believe them whatsoever. <laughs> So, so they, they, yeah, they, they want, oh, they say, oh, let's agree to 50 years, no change. They, they, it is very easy for them to make the promise, but they didn't intend to keep the promise in any time. So, so very, very soon after they got back to Hong Kong, gradually they tried to, you know, uh, to treat Hong Kong little by little, but they definitely want to take over Hong Kong as one of the cities of, of China. They want to practice their so-called sovereign, sovereignty. And, yeah. uh, and, and that means no freedom because that means the party controls everything. So you see little by little, the freedom of Hong Kong got, got the, the erosion, you know, little by little. And uh, somehow Hong Kong people uh, felt it. Uh, that that the erosion of the freedom and and then suddenly to some point they felt enough if it's enough if we don't do something now our children will become slaves of the party forever that's why so many young people are willing to actually sacrifice their lives to fight against uh, this party, they are fighting for the freedom. And the issue actually is not that that uh, complicated. It's very simple. It's a fight between, uh, uh, the, I think, liberty or freedom for everything and, uh, be- and uh, become a slave of the CCP system. So I, I think the same fight actually were... Um, it's a, it's nothing different from the fight for liberty from everywhere in this world. And because, as we said earlier, this party wants to spread their model, this China, great China model with the one belt, one road system. And they are actually trying to uh, infiltrate the West little by little. If we don't try to withhold them now, we don't get them check in check now, little by little what happened to Falun Gong practitioners has already, you know, happened to the Uyghurs and then it was spread. It's now, uh, I think, nearly spent to Hong Kong. They are now using many methods. They use they used against Falun Gong practitioners to people of Hong Kong. And if we lose Hong Kong, and then they, they will continue to move forward to the rest part of the world and even could be to the United States. That's why I think Hong Kong is such a great stake. And these, those people are very great and courageous people and they deserve our respect and they deserve our support and they deserve our help because they are not uh, defending their own rights but also defending and uh, and have the CCP in check uh, to uh, prevent the CCP from doing more harm to the rest of the world. So this this is why the world should be very grateful to what the Hong Kong people are doing. And and still, I think 
it's very sad that with still in Hong Kong, people still have a limited freedom to 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 reporting. You know, reporters can right. uh, report at a very close distance. Still, there are so many cover ups. You know, there are so many uh, suspicious, you know, so called suicide cases in Hong Kong, and uh, even like the girls, uh, the the young females got reports of got raped. They one of them, I think, was brave enough to uh, come forward and uh, speak publicly with her real name, and she actually removed her masks when she uh, finished her spoke. So, with all this happening, if we still don't, you know, uh, stop the CCP from doing what they are doing, I think I can hardly imagine what will happen next. So. Although they they are not because they they know if they openly use tax and the military against Hong Kong people like what they did in Tiananmen, the world will not allow them to do that. But they are doing it in a more, uh, I think, uh, a covered way and more sinister. They are using. There were reports which I believe to be true that they are using the CCP military soldiers or uh, armed police to pretend to be Hong Kong police and they pretended to be protesters and they create uh, chaos and so to make excuse for them to impose you know you have now tougher uh, laws like the emergency yeah. uh, status was sure. already yeah, invoked and then you have the anti-mask laws so they they are using very heinous heinous and hidden ways to to actually really doing very bad thing to the protesters like got them arrested more than 2000 got arrested and some of them got sexual sexually abused while in detention and they actually use mobs to attack who whom whoever they think are the leaders and they try to arrest as many leaders as possible and treat them very badly but you know uh, in somewhere hidden and they don't expose to the world. So the Hong Kong people are actually facing very, very dangerous yeah. uh, situation. They got, they got, you know, they are, they are not in China, in Chinese, we are creating a new term like being suicided, which means the CCP actually murdered them and then declare they, those people commit suicide. So you have, you know, maybe over already a, over a hundred so-called suicide cases happened during the past few months when the protesting are happening or you have found bodies in the sea. And all those could be, you know, people murdered by the party but declared that they committed suicide. And it is still very hard to get the, to uncover the truth, yeah. even with so much, you know, media uh, presence in Hong Kong, still very difficult for the world to find out. But from what I understand of the nature of the party, I know they can they can't do anything. They stop at no evil. So they actually, they they, they have three policies they apply to Falun Gong practitioners. One is to uh, eliminate them physically and bankrupt them financially and damage uh, their reputation. Mm -hmm. And another one is uh, anyone is not held accountable if you kill somebody. It is just counted it as suicide. So these are the, all the policies uh, applied to the Falun Gong practitioners during the persecution. So it's it very obvious for us who have experienced this that they are uh, adopting many or some of those kind of similar uh, tactics sure. they used against Falun Gong practitioners to people of Hong Kong. I mean, it, it's, it's classic authoritarian crackdown on, any, on anyone, right? You... I mean, you could. the yeah. The problem, of course, uh, for them is that there is that things are coming to light. It, it's interesting because uh, the uh, the tweet that was sent by Daryl Morey of, where, I mean, yeah. it was just a retweet yeah. of something that just said, "Support freedom, free yeah. Hong Kong." It was very innocuous, yeah. and and really, had the Chinese government done nothing, 
no one would ever have remembered it happened right but because they went kind of crazy and they insisted on it coming down and then canceling tv contracts and all this they showed their their hand and sort of you know the mask came off briefly uh and who they really are and it forced it forces the nba and i this is not this i don't believe this has even come close to being resolved at this point and i think uh i think it's just beginning because all these people are are forced to answer it and it's forcing ordinary americans to to sort of come to come to terms with what's going going on and who the chinese really are as far as the government and um mm-hmm. and i i mean i'm encouraged it's terrible what's going on in hong kong but i think it's forced people to sort of recognize the the influence that china has and i think in many ways uh china does not have as much influence as they think they do because as much as they can say, well, stop, you know, broadcasting games mm-hmm. in the instance yeah. of the NBA, they need our cultural exports far more than we need their money. You know, I think that yes. they, and, and our market is much larger than theirs still. And so if you were to lose the, yeah. the U.S. market, well, you'd, you've lost the NBA, for instance. Or if, you, if Hollywood loses any Americans who want to watch the movies, well, they've lost everything. <laughs> if, they, yes. to get, if to get China, you lose everything else, they, they completely yes. lose out. And so I think... So I think I'm encouraged in some ways. I mean, I'm very much a uh, very civilitarian and I'm very much in favor of freedom and liberty. And I, you know, applaud people who are willing to die for their freedom. I mean, that's, I yes. don't know that any of us can say we would do that. I mean, we did that a couple hundred years ago <laughs> and people mm-hmm. from time yes. to time through our history have. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess I'm, I'm encouraged that it seems to be that there's at least some self-examination and, and recognition in our country that something's going on and that we probably have to do something about it. Uh, I'm disappointed that the president hasn't really come out and said anything about it because he's, you know, in, again, it's the economic interests, right? The trade deals, blah, blah, blah. And so we can't say anything, but it, my hope is that, that the, the spirit of (laughs) the spirit of freedoms actually will overcome financial interests that people have because most people, most people don't really care what's going on in, you know, as far as, you know, sales yeah. of tabletops and movies in China. I mean, a few people do, but most Americans don't care. They just want yeah. the right thing done. And so I'm my, that's my hope. <laughs> and maybe yes, yes. whether it's accurate or not, I am not sure. Um, it's been a delightful discussion. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and, you know, there are two books that you've written, uh, Witnessing History, uh, One Woman Fights for Freedom in the Fulong Gong, uh, which you published in 2006. And then you have the 2013 book, I believe. Or eighteen book, two thousand eighteen. It's still water runs deep, and then the, is that correct? Yes, that's the uh, that's the uh, that's a Chinese version oh, of my so, autobiography. Okay. Yes, that's so that's a, one that I'm not going to be able to read. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, but the, the 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 first one you you will be able to, and there is also a documentary about my story right, that, called Free China: The Courage to Be. And that's from two thousand thirteen, and um. I think to follow uh, your writings, jenniferzengblog.com. I mean, all these links will be on uh, on the uh, paradox.com uh, website, so you can definitely go there and find all these links to the books and links to that. Uh, I want to thank you so much and wish you an early happy birthday. I know it's on that Wikipedia that your birthday's in just a couple days, so as we're recording this. Uh, and why don't you leave us with something uh, hopeful, Some what you think is going to happen, and uh, I guess... I guess where you where you hope or where you hope to see things happen the next trans, transpire in the next year, let's say. Yes, I'm I'm very hopeful that the the rightness will overcome evil, um, and and in the future and the uh, the endurance of the Falun Gong practitioners, they really they they uh, they have been uh, with withstanding this persecution for over 20 years now uh, now and they are still there and now they uh, I think the spirit of Hong Kong people also gave us courage and I think eventually it's a, it is a choice of everybody between uh, the, the, the right things to do the freedom the liberty and the righteousness uh, you know universal principles between the evil communist parties. I think we should be uh, very clear that this is a choice and uh, there is no middle ground and we have make, to make a stance uh, 
in front of this huge battle between the evil of the communist specter and the uh, spirit for freedom and liberty. And everybody has to make a, a stance. And I hope that everybody will choose uh, to stand with liberty and freedom uh, for human rights and uh, don't side with the evil CCP and don't kowtow to them. Well, I think that's a great way to end. And thank you so much for your words of inspiration, inspiration and for uh, you know, your activism and making sure that everyone's aware of what's going on. So thanks again so much for being on. Thank you again for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.